Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Crime at the Family Table. I am one of your hosts, Alyssa. I'm solo dolo today. Uh, life be life in. <laughs> uh, I was sick all week. Tanya has had some things going on, so here we are at the end of the week. You're still getting it. It's just on Sunday. Um, but we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for continuing to come back and listen to share with anybody you know that enjoys true crime. Um, I'm not going to do a super long introduction because, like I said, it is just me today. But I did want to give a trigger warning. Uh, we will be talking about assault. We will be talking about the unaliving of a child. Uh, we will be talking about a terrorist group um, here in America and our history. And if any of those things trigger you or if any of those things uh, will cause any damage or like mental harm to you, definitely click off, pick one of our other episodes, or stay tuned until next week, because we'll be back with another episode then. But without further ado, I'm going to jump right into today's episode. Now, before I get fully into the case, I did want to really quickly talk about some things that in like pop culture that were going on in 1910. Um, So in 1910, specifically for February 8th, W.D. Boyce starts the Boy Scouts of America. Now, of course, we know that the Boy Scouts have had some questionable happenings (laughs) over the past god what century or so uh but it started in 1910 if you've never heard of the triangle shirtwaist factory it was a fire that killed 146 workers that is a very very interesting story um in american history and i think bailey sarian has a video on it on youtube which is of course fantastic she's 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 bae um but it is a very interesting story so i would encourage you if you've never heard of it to read up on it there's plenty of videos on it uh discussing it arizona becomes the 48th state and the last state of the contiguous states um admitted to the union on february 14th 1912 april 14th 1912 the hms titanic strikes an iceberg um and it sinks killing I don't know, thousands of souls on board. If you haven't seen Titanic, go see Titanic at this point. It came out in 1988. It's a fantastic movie. Jim Thorpe, an American Indian from Oklahoma's Fox and Sack Nation, wins gold medals in the pentathlon and decathlon during the 1912 Olympic Games. Uh, President Woodrow Wilson signs the Jones-Sheffroth Act, on March 2nd, 1917, and that act established the right of U.S. citizenship to residents of Puerto Rico. Uh, the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is ratified on January 16, 1919, which prohibited the manufacture, sale, or transportation of intoxicating liquors in the United States. 
prohibition would be repealed in 1933. But 1919, it was illegal to sell, make, transport... (laughs) alcohol which i'm like oh what a time they just every everybody they wanted everybody to be so buttoned up and uptight and uh give us a rest and finally in 1919 eight members of the chicago white Sox, if you're baseball fans are eventually banned for life from baseball after they were convicted for intentionally losing games, allowing the Cincinnati Reds to win the 1919 World Series. So they threw the World Series, got caught, and they were banned for life from the game of baseball. Crazy. So those are just some quick facts about what was happening in the 1910s. America was shifting from more farming to more urban populations. Big cities were popping up and, you know, highways and things like that were being constructed. People were, they had extra money and they were spending their money on things like liquor and fashion and things like that. So that's what was going on in case you didn't know. And now to get into today's case. It's a tragic story of Leo Frank, who was 31 years old. He was a Jewish factory superintendent. Um, And I'm not going to get into his part of the story just quite yet. But we'll start with the murder of Mary Fagan. Mary Fagan was on her way to Atlanta's Confederate Memorial Day Parade on April 26, 1913 when she stopped in at the National Pencil Company to collect her paycheck. Her paycheck was a dollar and 20 cents. So she was working at this company for 10 cents an hour. Now back then they didn't have child labor laws. Child labor laws weren't established until about 1938. So kids could work, <laughs> I mean young kids. She was only 13. They could work, um, they could work strenuous hours doing strenuous tasks there were there were no laws put in place yet so she was working for 10 cents an hour she went down she collected her little check she got her little coins a dollar 20 um and unfortunately the next day her body was discovered in the factory's basement she never made it to the parade so leo frank who was 29 at the time of his arrest was working at the factory that saturday morning because he was the one that handed Mary her paycheck. And the police later reported he was the last person to admit to seeing her alive. So at approximately 3.30 a.m. the next morning, Newt Lee, who was the factory's uh, night watchman, he was African-American, reported finding the body to police. Now, on her body, there were two, and I quote, murder notes found. Uh, unfortunately, her body was very badly beaten, bloody, and bruised. So, I'll tell you what the note said. And I'll, I'm going to read them to you the way it's written. And I'm assuming it's written the way whoever wrote them wrote it. How many times can I say write and wrote in one sentence? <laughs> so it says, He said he would, W-O-O-D, love me, and lay down, play like Night Witch, did it. But that long, tall, black Negro boy, Negro did boy his left. I think it's supposed to say he did it himself. Anyway, and the second one says, and ma'am, 
a Negro hire down here did this. I went to make water and he pushed me down that hole. A long, tall Negro black that, that who it was. I think it was it's supposed to say that's who it was. That who it was, W-A-S-E. Long, slim, tall Negro. I write while play with me. This is what it says. I listen. This is exactly what was written on these two notes. So eventually, of course, they identified the body as Mary Fagan. And Newt Lee, the night watchman, became the investigator's first suspect. And the first arrest. Surprise, surprise. The only black guy that was there at the time is the one they suspect first. Okay. Uh, But police quickly settled on Leo Frank, who eventually was arrested for Mary's murder days later on April 29th, 1913, and held at the Fulton County Jail. So So Frank was actually very known and and he married into a prominent uh, Jewish family. His wife, Lucille's grandfather, co-founded Atlanta's Temple Synagogue. And he actually became the president of one of the large chapters. So the story of Mary's murder and Frank's arrest, uh, it took off in Atlanta's newspapers and the media. Um, So as Frank sat in jail, police still actually had their eyes on another suspect, Jim Conley. of course, a black custodian at the factory. Uh, He was detained two days after Frank's arrest when he was, quote, seen in the pencil factory basement washing out a shirt soaked with what appeared to be blood. So when police learned that um, he could write, he was suspected of being the one who wrote the notes found at the scene of the crime. So they questioned him for two weeks. He eventually said Frank paid him to write the notes and that Frank confessed to him that he'd killed Mary. The admission of authorship in hand, the investigators pushed their advantage. That's a quote from uh, a writer who wrote about this story later on. Under careful coaching, Conley would produce three affidavits that, while contradictory in parts, agreed on the main point, that Frank murdered Mary Fagan, and then they conspired to dispose of the body and write the notes in the hope that they could pin the crime on either Newt Lee, the Black Knight Watchman, or pencil company boiler operator William Knowles, who was also tall and dark-skinned. Prosecutors and defense attorneys were both keen on the jury hearing Mr. Conley's version of events. And another quote, for different but equally racist reasons. This is what the author of the book said. Lead prosecutor Hugh Dorsey put his bets that the jury would find Conley, quote, too stupid to lie. While Frank's lawyers counted on his, like, he made a bunch of contradictory statements so they thought that was going to fall apart on the witness stand fast forward to the trial so it was just filled with people crowds gathered outside the courthouse chanting hang the Jew of course it's 1913 racism in America was just it was at its 
had its youth up, still fresh. It had little wrinkles. It was still out here. Obviously, I'm being facetious, but um, the, the trial was based on mostly circumstantial evidence, but it still made national headlines. It was a gigantic lightning bolt that hit this state. And that was from um, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. It wasn't just a whodunit, but a clearinghouse for cultural grievances that touched on issues of race, class, gender, and religion. the evidence was circumstantial and of course they were relying heavily on Mr. Conley's testimony. The trial lasted for four weeks and it ended with a guilty verdict on August 25th after just a few hours of deliberating. Now outside the courthouse the crowd cheered the conviction announcement. According to the New York Tribune at the time Dorsey was lifted to the shoulders of several men and carried more than 100 feet through the shouting throng. They were doing the most. The following day, Judge Leonard Roan sentenced Frank to death by hanging. Two years of denied appeals followed that, including a request for a new trial on the basis that Frank's constitutional rights were violated when Roan advised Frank's lawyers it would be unsafe for him to appear in the courtroom upon the reading of the verdict. Excuse my little co-host if you can hear her. It's my one-year-old. A retrial motion was also rejected after Conley's former attorney said he believed Conley was actually the murderer. Rising to the level of the U.S. Supreme Court, so this made it all the way to the Supreme Court, y'all. Frank's conviction was allowed to stand when the court voted 7-2 on April 19th of 1915. So we are two years in at this point. And they denied his appeal. Justices Oliver Wendell Holmes and Charles Evan Hughes dissented, stating the hostility outside the courthouse influenced the conviction. It was so noisy outside that it was it was difficult for the judge to hear the answers of the jurors, although he was only 10 feet from them. That's how huge this mob was. They were hostile. They were, of course, being racist, most of them. So, the governor actually commuted Frank's sentence to life in prison. Georgia Governor John Slayton conducted his own extensive investigation into the case, and on June 21st, 1915, the day before Frank's execution was to take place, and as his term in office was ending, the governor commuted his sentence to life in prison. He was, of course, criticized for having a conflict of interest in the case. His law partner served as Frank's lead attorney, and with anti-Semitism rising and steadily increasing, the decision led to outrage in the community. People were pissed that they were letting this Jew, and this is not how I feel, they were letting this Jew just get off of the death penalty. They They were letting him just spend time in prison, so armed mobs y'all roamed streets forcing jewish businessmen to board up their windows and the doors a mob of several thousand people had guns hatches dynamite this is how serious this was dynamite and they surrounded the governor's mansion until they you know the state police came and, and broke everything up 
Frank was actually attacked um, a month later on July 18, 1915 by an inmate who slit his throat with a butcher knife. If another prisoner was a, a surgeon who had actually been convicted of murder hadn't stitched up Frank's wound, he would have died. So, here's where the tragedy gets even more real. Frank wouldn't survive a second attack that happened less than a month later. A mob of 25 men calling themselves the Knights of Mary Fagan. Remember, Mary's the little girl who was murdered. The Knights of Mary Fagan arrived in the middle of the night at the Milledgeville prison farm where Frank was held. They overpowered the guards. They didn't shoot. They overpowered the guards. No shots were fired and they kidnapped Frank from his cell. If you ask me, they let that happen. No shots were fired. They didn't exchange any gunfire, but they still overpowered the guards. These were either some weak, wimpy, scary guards or they were like, hey, we don't like this Jew either. We think he did it. Go on ahead, man. I think that is the more logical explanation, but a caravan of cars drove him about 100 miles away to an oak grove near Marietta, Georgia, Fagan's, uh, Mary Fagan's hometown. They cuffed him and they hung him. They lynched Leo Frank. He died August 17, 1915. Now, as word spread that Leo Frank's body was twisting from a limb um, on the outskirts of Marietta, 3,000 people came. A crowd of 3,000 people started to form. Uh, the people would, like, pick at Frank's corpse. They tore away his nightshirt up, like, up to his elbows. Um, and photographers actually snapped pictures. They snap pictures of of his his corpse. They snap pictures of everything that they were doing to it. It's it's just uh, it's just wild to think about. So the mob, including some of Marietta's most prominent citizens, which included a preacher, a former governor, a former mayor, a doctor, a judge, son of a U.S. senator, and a lawyer, were just a few of the people that were were in the mob. So after the lynching, one of the first things they did was preside over the grand jury, hearing that swiftly absolved the town's population of any guilt in Frank's death. The 25 men who were the men that participated in the kidnapping and lynching swore one another to secrecy and their names were never reported. Their identities weren't made public for almost 80 years years 80 years these 25 men got away with the kidnap and lynching of leo frank they took justice into their own hands and convicted this man and i don't even think they had much of the facts of the case you know because the trial was ongoing so were they listening in on the trial were they just standing outside just convicting him automatically because he was jewish and they were racist anyway so this what about not just this one incident, but at the time, it was the resurgence of the KKK. If you don't know what the KKK is, they are a terrorist group in American history. I said what I said. The 
Ku Klux Klan is what the KKK stands for, and they are notoriously racist. They promote hate speech. They promote um, white supremacy. They believe everyone else, especially, especially blacks, especially Jewish people, are beneath them and inferior. I could go on and on about the KKK, but do your research. They are horrible individuals and they're stupid because basically they walk around with sheets over their heads bed sheets over their heads with eye holes cut out they look like ghosts it's 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 stupid so anti-jewish sentiment and discrimination in the area were widespread leading up to frank's murder led by tom watson that is insane the editor of jeffersonian magazine who filled his Atlanta-based publication with anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic rants. Now, if we take a look back in history, who was predominantly Catholic? Italians, um, Irish, a.k.a. people that would have come from another place to America, right? Immigrants. Following Frank's conviction, this man wrote, Jew money has debased us, bought us, and sold us, and laughs at us. Sounds like they were haters and jealous. Hereafter, let no man reproach the South with lynch law. Let him remember, I should have did this in a Southern accent, let him remember the unendurable provocation, and let him say whether lynch law is not better than no law at all. A month after Frank's murder and after 45 years of being inactive, the Ku Klux Klan burned a cross on Stone Mountain near Atlanta, a park that serves as a state uh, designated, it's like a memorial to the Confederacy, to announce that this group was reforming. Oh joy, goody. So in the aftermath of terror, about half the 3,000 Jews in Georgia, they just left. They left the state. Those who stayed, they just hid, basically. They locked their doors, um, and they were forced to survive, basically, a boycott of Jewish businesses. But Leo Frank's trial also inspired the 1913 founding of the Anti-Defamation League, or the ADL, by Chicago attorney, attorney Sigmund Livingston. And his mission was to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all. So, the lead prosecutor, Mr. Dorsey, in Frank's case, was elected Georgia's governor in 1915, and he later served as an Atlanta Judicial Circuit Superior Court judge. Mr. Watson, the editor of the Jeffersonian Magazine, was elected a U.S. Senator in 1920. He died in office two years later. Mr. Conley, who was the black janitor, was sentenced to a year on a chain gang as an accessory of murder after the fact. So while newspaper coverage of Leo's case this kind of eased up, it ceased after the lynching, um, a lot of historians across the board have believed Frank was wrongly convicted. They believe he was innocent. So almost 70 years after Mary's murder on March 7, 1982, a 10-page special section in the Tennessean, 
a newspaper, reported that Frank was innocent. It focused on statements from Alzano Mann, who had served as Frank's office boy. So he was 14 at the time of the crime. Alzano said that Conley murdered Mary. Remember that Conley is the, the black janitor and that he witnessed him holding the unconscious girl. Crazy. Conley said, if you ever mention this, I'll kill you. That was according to um, Alzano's statement. He said when he, Alzano actually went and told his mother what he had seen, she told him to keep quiet. And he did. Which, I mean, you're 14. You just witnessed way too much. I can't say I blame him. He was a kid and his mother was probably just trying to keep him safe and keep him out of it. So this new evidence in a campaign led by the Anti-Defamation League to clear Frank's name eventually led the Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles. You hear my baby coughing. <laughs> she, she's getting more teeth in, so she's like, she's, her mouth is really juicy. But she's alright. If anyone was concerned, she's alright. <laughs> uh, eventually led the Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles to issue a pardon to Leo on March 11, 1986. The pardon did not exonerate Frank, but was granted for the state's failure to protect him while in custody and for failing to bring his killers to justice. People of goodwill and judgment have long believed that Leo Frank was victimized by perjury and prejudice at his trial, and that an innocent man was lynched by a mob and flamed by bigotry. And these were the words from the ABL's Southeastern director, Stu Lewin-Grubb. We can now finally close our files on our first case. Frank's murder trial and lynching has inspired a number of dramatizations on stage and screen, uh, as well as several books like Parade, a Broadway musical, which debuted in 1998. And it actually won Tony Awards for Best Original Score and Best Book. And it's been uh, getting like a resurgence this year. So that, folks, is the tragic, unfortunate story of not just Leo Frank, but of Mary Fagan. She didn't get the justice that she truly deserved. And I feel iffy about a lot of this story, but... You know, we'll never know. We weren't there. It was a time where ah, police work and there was no DNA and racism. Every A lot of things impacted just criminal justice. So I thank you all for listening. This was a short one, but it definitely was very interesting. Join us next week. We'll be uh, the two amigas, <laughs> amigas, chitas, friends for life again. So we thank you for listening to Crime at the Family Table, and we will see you next week. Bye.